No? Is it on? Okay. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. It says, And it happened when he was in a certain city, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests, and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him and their families of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and to lay before him. And they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the housetop. And let him down with his bed through the, til- through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and he said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. Lord, I just uh, I thank you for your word. Lord, I just thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I ask as we open up your word this morning that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our eyes to see what you have to say for us. Lord, I just pray that you'd be glorified in this place this morning, that your words would come through and it'd pierce to the hearts of everybody that's in here, Lord. I pray that we would not be able to leave here this morning without being changed, that your word would just change us through and through, that we would come to know you, that you are God. Lord, I just pray that we'd be desperate for you this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So this passage here, these two stories that we just looked at, um, what we're going to take a look at this morning, we're going to see that these two stories are actually connected. And what we're going to see, I'm going to take a look at, we want to see how they're connected. But before we do that, I want to back up a little bit. I just want to kind of lay out what Luke is doing here in this section of Scripture, what he's laying out in his gospel for us. And... um, I want you to realize that Luke does not necessarily write these stories in chronological order for us. But what he's doing is he's writing them in such a way that it is revealing something to us. It's revealing to us. He's trying to reveal to us who Jesus is. And along with that, he's trying to reveal to us the ministry of Jesus. He wants to reveal to us what is going on in Jesus' ministry. And along with that, he's also wanting to show us What is going on in Jesus' life? So really what he's doing here is he's trying to provoke us to ask some questions. And the questions he wants us to get us to ask is, who is Jesus? Who is this man? What was Jesus' ministry like? What was his 
lifelike? And that's the questions he wants us to get us to ask. And what he's after here is he wants to demonstrate and to prove to us who Jesus is throughout all of this. And so that's what he's laying out here. And what we get to look at this morning is just a snapshot. It's just a little quick look of the life of Jesus, of what Jesus' ministry was looking like. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see in these two stories that there are two men in these stories. And as we look at these two men, we are going to see that these two men are desperate for Jesus. And we're going to see that the Lord here, we're going to see that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And as we look at this, we're going to come across the question. The question is going to come up in our face. Who is this man? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is he? And what we're going to see, we're going to see two different types of responses by the people that are in these passages. We're going to see that they will either receive Christ for who he is, or they're going to reject him because they don't like what he has to say. And they're going to see when they encounter, when they encounter Jesus, they're going to be faced with the question, is he Lord? Will they crown him as king or is he a liar? And they're going to crucify him on the cross. And the same is true for each of us here this morning. When we are encountered by Christ, when we're encountered by what he is laying out for us here in the scriptures, what he claims, the things that he's claiming here and the statements that he makes, They do not allow us to say that, well, he's just a good moral guy. He's just a good moral teacher. We can't say that he's just one of many ways to get to God. He's just one of many ways to get to heaven. Jesus will not allow it. And the words that he uses here, he will not allow that. He forces us to make that decision. He's laying out who he is. And as we look at these things, we're going to see it's going to reveal some things about us. And what's listed here, it's going to reveal some things about who Jesus is as well. And what we're going to be left with this morning, we're going to be left with the question, we're going to be left with the dilemma. Are we desperate for Jesus? Would I run to Him? Am I clinging to Him? Would I go to extreme lengths to come face to face with Jesus? Am I desperate? Am I desperate for Jesus? So the first story that we're going to take a look at here is the leper. Jesus heals the leper. Jesus cleanses the leper. Verse 12, it says, And it happened when he was in a certain city, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So Jesus here, he's teaching at this time, he's teaching in the region of Galilee. And as he's teaching in the region of Galilee, he comes into this city. And as he comes into the city, this man is there. This man that is full of leprosy. The word full in the Greek here that Luke uses is pleris, which means complete. So what Luke is saying is that this man is completely full of leprosy. Now, just so that you know, I don't know if we all know, but I know a lot of us do. Luke is a doctor. That's what he is. That's his profession. That's his calling. That's, uh, that was his trade. He's a medical doctor. So he understands these diseases. He knows what he's writing about when he's talking about these diseases. And he is the only one that uses this phrase, full of leprosy. It's the only place it's ever used. It's a unique term that's only used here by Luke. And what he's doing, he's, he's referring to that this guy's body, his whole body is ravaged by this disease of leprosy. So the reason I say that is because leprosy in the Bible, when we look at leprosy in the Bible, it's, it's a skin condition. And 
there are many different types of skin condition that fall under the definition of leprosy in the Bible. And really what I want to show you here is that this classification that Luke is using here, being ravaged, being his body is completely full of this disease, would be what we would know as today as Hansen's disease. So when we think of Hansen's disease in our modern day right now, we would think of it as what we would think of as leprosy, the leprosy that ravages people's bodies. So that is what Luke is referring to here. That's what this guy has. And so just a little bit about what is Hansen's disease or what is leprosy so we kind of understand what's going on a little bit with this guy. Um, the medical definition of leprosy is it is a chronic infectious disease that primarily affects the peripheral nerves the skin, the upper respiratory tract, the eyes, and the nasal mucosa. So that's what the bacteria is affecting when you acquire um, leprosy. The name of the bacterium is called Mycobacterium leprae. So that bacteria is in a class of a family of bacteria that is a, uh, a slow-growing organism and, and takes over the body. So another bacteria that is in that same class would be what we have today as tuberculosis. Same type of a deal. This guy, this is what he has. He has this disease. And so as this bacteria attacks the nerves in your peripheral um, nerves in your extremities, so in your hands and in your feet, it destroys the nerves that are so you can't feel anymore. You have no sensation. So what you end up doing, somebody that has leprosy, say this is a stove and you put your hand on that stove. And if I'm not looking and I don't know, I wouldn't feel that my hand is burning. You don't feel it anymore. You can't feel pain. You can't feel cold. You can't feel heat. That's what's going on in these guys. So because of that, that's really what is destroying them. So what ends up happening is that they become extremely disfigured in their extremities. You go online. You go on YouTube and look. You type in leprosy into Google, and you will see the pictures of what it looks like. It's amazing. It's amazing. I would not suggest you do it right now, though. Because it is gross. I could only look at a few of them. I didn't want to look at it anymore. It's a bad disease. And it is rampant still in the world today. It's a terrible disease. It's a horrible disease. And often, what would end up happening in that time is that these people, they were shunned from their communities. Lepers were not allowed to be around anyone that was clean. They weren't, around to be, they weren't allowed to be around anyone that was well. They were kicked out of their community. So what was it like to be a leper? What was it like in that time? There was a list of rules that these guys had to follow, and Leviticus lays it out for us. I'll read it for you real quick. In Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, it describes what a leper had to do when he came around people. It says that a leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let his hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover up his upper lip, and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now because of this, those that have contracted this disease, leprosy, they were complete and total social outcasts. They lived outside the city. And perhaps if they were lucky, they were able to live in a leper colony where the total extent of their community would be other lepers. So imagine, I want you guys to put yourself in the shoes of a leper right now. Pretend that you've contracted leprosy in this time. So you've been kicked out of the city. Never again are you going to be able to touch or come into contact with those that you love. Never again will you be able to hold your wife. Never again will you be able to hold your, your husband. Never again will you be able to hold your children. 
Never again will you be able to shake the hands of your friends. You are utterly and totally and completely outcasted. You're excluded from society. They cast you out. They have abandoned you. You've been forgotten. That's what it's like to live in that. That's what it's like to live in that state. And not only are they social outcasts, but they are also religious outcasts. Because of the disease, they were not allowed to enter the temple. They could not go in and they could not participate in the sacrifices. They were absolutely cut off from all religious activity. And religious, the religious law later added on, the Pharisees added on later, that uh, if you even came near a leper, you would be considered infected. So if you were six feet on the side of a leper, upwind, you were considered that you could be contagious. If you're 150 feet downwind from them, you would be considered contagious. That's how these guys looked at this. And these Pharisees, what they would do is they would keep rocks in their pockets just in case they ran across somebody that needed to be stoned and just in case they ran across a leper that they needed to throw rocks at to tell them to get out of here. That's what they did. That's what these guys were facing. These guys faced social and religious persecution. So that's what this leper, that's what he's facing. So if we can put it in today's terms, what if somebody walked through those back doors right now with Ebola and we knew when they walked in that they had Ebola? How do we treat them? Would we want to go over and go and love on them? Would we want to go hug them? Or would we get away from them? Because we know that there's no cure for Ebola. We know how contagious Ebola is. What would we do? It's the same way for this leper. Nobody wanted to be around him. Not only was this leprosy a physical disease, and not only was it, did it have the uh, religious toll that it took on him, the social toll that it took on him, but it was also associated with sin. There's several passages in the Bible that discuss leprosy being associated with sin. And just a couple of examples. Um, leprosy was given as a punishment to Miriam, Moses' sister, and to Uzziah, king of Judah. Both of them were given leprosy as a punishment for their pride. So because of this, and in light of this, the belief system was at that day that this disease was associated with sin. This wasn't necessarily true, though, but that was the belief system. That's what the people believed. It was completely associated with sin. And as we see in this passage, this is what Luke here is trying to convey to us. This is the connection that he's trying to make for us. And not necessarily that this leper in this passage sinned and acquired leprosy, but what he's trying to do is he wants to show us that leprosy is the visible representation of our internal spiritual condition. So I want you to see this. This is what Luke is laying out for us. This is what he wants us to see. Luke is showing us that it's the disease that is on the inside of us manifested in this picture of this guy with leprosy. Now imagine, imagine living that life, having that life that you are cast out of the town that you're living in, that you can never have contact with people again. You can never be a part of a religious community again. Imagine, in this town, if you have leprosy, you're walking in, people are going to pick up rocks to throw them at you to get you out of Buell. Imagine having to yell out everywhere that you went, unclean, unclean, get away from me, I'm unclean. Imagine having to do that, having to live that life. This was the life of a leper. But then, imagine hearing about somebody that might just be able to rescue you. 
Imagine hearing about somebody that might just be able to cure you of your disease. And then we start to get the picture of how desperate this guy was. How, desperate he want, how desperately he wanted to get to Jesus. This guy was desperate. He was desperate for Jesus. And for us, this leper here, he is a picture of a repentant sinner for us. Look at this. What I want you to see is I want you to see the response of the leper here. I want you to see what he realizes what he needs. The first thing that he realizes is that he needs, that he admits that he has a need. And really for us, that's where we got to be too. We have to admit that we have a need. We have to admit that we have sin in our lives. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he implored him or he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now I want to ask you the question, where is Jesus at when this takes place? He's in the city, right? Where is the leper supposed to be? He's supposed to be outside of the city, yeah. So what's he doing here? He was so desperate. He was there pursuing Jesus. He was willing to take all that ridicule. He was willing to take the people throwing rocks at him. All the people running and screaming because he's standing there just like somebody coming in with the Ebola. He was willing to take that because he was after Jesus. He desperately wanted to get to this guy. And as he came into town, he was looking and looking and looking for Jesus. And when he finally found him, he fell on his face and he implored him. That word implored means beg. So he fell on his face and he begged him. The definition of that word implored in the Greek is to ask with urgency and with the implication of a presumed need. He knew, this guy knew that he had a need. And he knew that there was no hope for him other than Jesus Christ. That's where he knew he was going to get that need met. And that is the only way that we can come to Jesus. We have to know, we have to acknowledge that we have a need. We have to admit that each one of us has a need. Because a lot of times what we do is we sit here in church and we think, you know what, I'm really just a good guy. I did that for a long time. I sat in these pews coming on Sunday morning saying, I'm a good guy. I'm not doing what these guys are doing over here. I'm not doing what they're doing over there. I'm a good guy. But what ends up happening with that is that we do not come desperately for Jesus. We do not realize that we need Him. And what, it, what ends up happening is that Jesus is just another part of our life. Because we don't acknowledge that we have a need. Because we don't understand that we have a need. And what Luke is trying to do here, he's trying to show us that each of us has a desperate need. And that need is for Jesus Look at what the leper does. He cries out, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, isn't it interesting here the words that he uses? Why doesn't he say, heal me? And Luke here, he's very specific with these words. He says, make me clean. See, this guy, he realized that he had a problem. He realized what his condition was. He realized that he needed to be right with the Lord. And Luke here, what he's doing, he's, he's connecting this for us and he's showing us that that is our sin in our life. And I want you to think about this. Imagine, think of your worst sin that you could ever think of that you wouldn't want anybody to know. And imagine if that sin was visible on the outside to everybody else. The thing that you're most ashamed of. Imagine if your thoughts were visible to everybody else. Imagine if your anger was visible to everybody else. Imagine if your greed 
was visible to everybody else. Imagine if your lust, imagine, imagine if your impatience, imagine if your jealousy was visible to everybody else around you so that everybody could see it. Because that's how this leper was. Everybody could see him. Imagine if that was for us. If that was how we were, if that's how our sin was, how desperately would we seek Jesus for him to clean us? How desperately would you run to find Jesus? That's what Luke's trying to tie us. That's what Luke wants to show us. That's the question he wants us to ask. How desperate are we? How desperate are we for Jesus? Do we realize that we have a need? That first step, that first step in acknowledging that we have a need, that first step in acknowledging that we have sin, is acknowledging that we have sin. That first step of repentance is acknowledging that we have sin. And I would encourage you, even today, to pray. Pray to the Lord. Ask Him to reveal that sin to you in your life. What is it? What is it that you need to take to Him? And ask Him to reveal it to you so that you can repent of it and so that you can be right with Him. Whatever it is. Are we doing that? Are we doing that daily? Are we giving our, each day to the Lord? Do we come to Him each day and asking for forgiveness in that sin? Because if we are, it leads us to the second step. The leper here, he realized that his only way to be cured was through Jesus. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, he had heard about Jesus' healings, but he had never seen it. And in light of that, he still believed him. He still believed that it would happen. That is amazing faith. This guy had incredible faith. You know, he could have come to Jesus and said, hey, can you heal me? But that's not what he does. What does he say? He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That is faith. That is belief that Jesus Christ is the answer to sin. And you know what's amazing here? is that he had faith before Jesus healed him. He doesn't say, Jesus, heal me, and then I'll believe that you're God. What does he say? He says, you are God, heal me. This is how we have to come to the Lord. This is what faith looks like. Have you totally submitted your life to Jesus? Is he your everything? Is he everything to you in your life? Do you realize it is only through Him alone that we have hope? Or is He just another thing amongst everything else in our lives? And He's not really everything. Jesus gives us a parable about this. In Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the treasure, of the hidden treasure. I'm sure most of us have heard of it, but I want you to think about it again real quick. Just going to summarize it real quick. Um, this man... He comes to a field. He finds a field. And in that field, he finds a treasure. And what does that man do? He goes and he sells everything to be able to buy that field because of that treasure. So is Jesus, is that, is that who Jesus is to you? Is that what Jesus is for you? Would you be willing to give up everything for him? Everything, because that's what he's asking us to do. That's what Jesus is laying out there. He wants us to give up everything for him. He wants us to turn and trust in him. You see, if we recognized our sin daily and realized how desperately we needed Him, that He is our only hope, then we would run to Jesus just like this leper did. And we would respond just like this leper did. Now let's take a look at how Jesus responds to him. 
Jesus responds to him in a loving way. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. Now Luke is very specific here in this as well. This is why I like Luke. Luke is very specific in his Greek. He's got the doctor mentality of writing everything down. This is why I like him. He says, Jesus reached out his hand, and then what happened? Jesus touched him. Jesus could have just spoke to him and said, the leprosy be gone, and it would have been. But he didn't. And the reason Luke is pointing this out here is that he's trying to show us that Jesus loves us. He's showing that Jesus loved this guy enough to touch him. And the word here means that he firmly put his hand on him. So maybe he put his arm around him. Maybe he came up and hugged him. I don't know. Maybe he grasped him in some way to show him that he loved him. He says, I love you. That's what he did for this leper. And it says that he was cleansed immediately. Now what's incredible about this is that if Jesus touched this guy in the sight of everybody else, now he's unclean. Do you guys see the picture of what it is? It's a picture of Jesus going to the cross for us. It's a picture of him laying out his life for us because he absorbs his sin or our sin. He absorbs our sin onto him. He takes our leprosy upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel message that Jesus came, sent by the Father out of love, to die for us on the cross. He lived that sinless and perfect life, dying on the cross for us, taking our sin, our defilement upon Him, so that He would take the wrath of God and we wouldn't have to. Then rising again, conquering death, conquering the grave, conquering sin. He offers that to everybody that comes to Him in repentance and faith and trusting in the sacrificial work that He did for us on the cross. That's the gospel message. Never again would this lever have to say, unclean, unclean. He would never have to say it again because Jesus Christ made Him clean. That's the truth. That's what the gospel message is all about. That's what it is for us. It's not about rules. It's not about doing things or not doing things. The message of the gospel is not like anything else. It is that Jesus died for our sin in our place. And that if we put our faith and our trust in Him, He will absorb our defilement. And in exchange, He will give you His perfect righteousness. Jesus meets the deepest need of this desperate man. He touches him. He makes him clean. And that's what we see here next. Jesus cleanses him. He says, I am willing. Be cleansed. And it says immediately the leprosy left him. And you know, this is the heart of Jesus. That if you come to him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And you repent of your sins. And you come to him in faith. Jesus is always willing to say, I am willing. And immediately, you are made a new creation in Christ. Now imagine, if you're there and you see this happen, immediately this man is cleansed. How amazing would it be to see that this guy's skin was completely restored right before your eyes? How amazing would that be? And this is what Jesus does for us. He makes us a new creation. 
in Christ. He restores the brokenness, and his heart is exactly this. I'm willing. Be cleansed. That's what he wants for us. That's his heart for us. See, repentance and faith, it brings healing. It brings forgiveness. All we have to do is cry out to him. He's willing to forgive. And then something interesting happens here in verse 14. Take a look in verse 14. And it says, And he charged him to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. So what he's doing here is he's telling them not to tell anybody, but to go show himself to the priest. Why would he not want anybody to tell him? There's a lot of different viewpoints out there. I think one of the biggest viewpoints is it actually created a problem for him to be able to move about freely. He could not get to the people that he wanted to get to because the crowd swarmed him all the time. They were just coming because they just wanted the physical healing. I think that's probably what's going on here. But he says, go show yourself to the priest. Now, according to the law in Leviticus 14, if somebody was supposedly healed of leprosy, they had to be inspected. They had, it had to be verified by the priest. So, what they would do if the priest said, yeah, it's verified. He's been healed of leprosy. They would have to go through an eight-day process. And through that process, through that cleansing process, they would have to, uh, it, would, it would restore them to, with fellowship with their countrymen, with Israel. And so what they had to do is they, it involved some washings. It involves they had to clip all their hair off to be cleansed. And at the end of that, there would be a sacrifice. So really, what is this all about? What's it showing is that they're a new man. They're a new creation. That when everybody would see them, they would say, yeah, this guy had leprosy, but he doesn't have leprosy anymore. He's clean. So see, the picture here is that Luke is connecting this all to sin for us. And he's helping us to see that this is a picture of what happens when Jesus redeems us from sin. That we're made a new creation in Christ. That we're no longer the old man, but we're the new man walking in righteousness in Jesus Christ. We become a new creation Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Luke doesn't want us to forget this. What he's showing us here is that Christ's strength comes from his time that he spends with his Father. You know, Jesus, as he's living here on earth, he was a dependent man just like we are in many ways. He had to eat just like we had to eat. He had to sleep just like we have to sleep. He needed to spend time with the Father just like we needed to spend time with the Father. And if you look throughout this book of Luke and if you look through the other Gospels, you will see there are numerous, numerous times that Jesus goes to prayer. So what Luke is trying to do here, he's trying to make a point to us. He's trying to say, if Christ needed to spend time in prayer... How much more should I have to spend in prayer? This, this here, it should drive us to spend time in the Word. It should drive us to spend time in prayer. It should drive us to realize that we are dependent on God. If we don't realize that, we aren't going to realize that we have a desperate need. We aren't going to run desperately to God. So that's the first story. Now Luke is going to introduce us into the second story. In the second story, we don't get to see the visual, the visual representation of sin on the outside, but what we get to see is the actual forgiveness of sin. Jesus heals a desperate, paralyzed man. 
And this story is going to show us our desperate need. And it is also going to reveal to us our greatest need. And our greatest need, what we think it is, isn't always what we think it is. Our greatest need is restoration to God and forgiveness of sin. That's our greatest need. Take a look at it here in verse 17. Luke's going to lay out the setting here. He says, Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So Jesus here, what he's doing is, he's teaching in the city. He's not teaching at the temple, he's teaching at somebody's house. And as he's teaching at that house, that place is packed. Who's it packed with, though? This is what I find amazing. It's packed with the Pharisees and the the, uh, scribes. That's who's there. It's the teachers of the law. And why are they there? They're they're there to find out. They hear that somebody is claiming to be the Messiah. They hear that there's healings going on. They're They're there to see, is this the real deal? Amongst some other reasons why they're there. So what they did is they sent these religious leaders, they sent a group of them there to check it out and to see. So who are these Pharisees? They were the religious leaders during the day of Jesus. They were devoted to exact observance of the Jewish law. That's what they were about. They, these people, these Pharisees, they were respected by the people. The people looked up to the Pharisees. And you know what? They had good intentions when they started. They had good intentions to keep Israel pure. That's why they were there. But through the process of doing that, they really began to muddy up the waters. They began to confuse God's laws and they began to infuse their own laws into the system. And they added all kinds of things. They added things like where you could go and how you could go there on the Sabbath. One of the crazy laws that they made is they said, if you put a stake at your house and tied a rope to it and tied yourself to the rope, you could go anywhere you want because you really never left home. So why would they do all this? Why would they do it? And the reason they did it, the reason they made up these rules, because they figured if we do this and this and this, then God will be pleased with us. That was the reason they did it. Now, just a little bit of history about these Pharisees, how they came about. If you look into Israel's past, if you look into their history, you will see that Israel had walked away from God many, many times. They had walked in absolute rebellion to God. They had walked in absolute rejection of God. And so out of that and out of the exile, when they came out of Babylon back into the land, that's where this group rose out of. And they rose out of it to make sure that Israel stayed pure. So they had good intentions to begin with. And there were some good Pharisees. But there were some that were not so good as well. And some of them they really wanted to know, is Jesus who he's really claiming to be? And some of them, they just outright rejected him. They didn't care. They were blinded by their own religious laws. And what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to expose their hearts. He's going to expose the religion that's in them. And we see the scribes here as well, the teachers of the law. Who were they? These guys, these were the experts in the law. These guys were the lawyers for the Jewish law. So they would tell you, they were highly respected as well, but they would tell you if this guy's doing right or if this guy's doing wrong. They knew the law. And it says here that the Pharisees and the teachers, they came from all over. They even came from Jerusalem. Now, really, I don't think they were there to get healed. 
I don't think they were there to learn from Jesus. I think the real reason they were there, they were, tried to, they were going to try to prove that Jesus was a fraud. They wanted to prove that Jesus was a fake. They wanted to prove that he was a failure. That's really why they were there. And take a look here what Luke adds at the second half of verse 17. It says, And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And I think the reason he puts that in there is he's making a contrast for us between the Pharisees and between Jesus. The Pharisees who thought they were close to God, he's comparing them with Jesus who is actually connected to God. That's what he's laying out here for us. And I think this is a real important principle for us to see who these Pharisees are and that they think that they were connected to God. Because I'll tell you, one of the things I really love about this church and what I like about the Calvary chapels is how they teach the word. They tear through the word, they don't skip anything, and they go word by word by word. That's what I really like about it. But what we've got to be careful about is that we don't come and we, don't, we take the Bible and look at it as a textbook. If we look at it as a textbook, we're going to get in trouble because this is what the Pharisees were doing. The problem with the Pharisees was that they didn't even know who Jesus was when he came on the scene. Because their hearts had grown so far away from God because of all the things that they had put in place of him. So if we're not careful, that knowledge that we can gain of God's word, it can make our hearts miss the gospel. What does knowledge do? Knowledge puffs up. We've got to have the love. It's the love that builds up. It's the love that edifies And the Pharisees, they're placed here. I think they're put in here to show us they're a warning to us. They're a warning that if we can know everything we could possibly know about Scripture and miss the heart of God, now we're going to see a new character come into this story. We're going to see a man that is desperate for Jesus. Look at verse 18. It says, Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So what we have here is we have a paralyzed man who has no ability on his own. But he has some friends. He has some friends that hear about Jesus and they go to find Jesus. And they come to the house, but that house is packed. And who was it mostly packed with? The Pharisees. It's sadly, it's packed by the Pharisees. Those Pharisees wouldn't even let this guy in. The guy that needed to get in to see Jesus is being held out by the Pharisees. What are the Pharisees doing there? Instead of letting this guy in, they're standing in there. They're sitting in there critiquing Jesus' sermon. They're sitting in there critiquing what Jesus is saying, trying to catch him. Instead of letting the guy in that needs to be in there. Think about that. Does it ever happen to us? Do Christians ever stand in front of Jesus so that non-Christians can't even get to Him by the things that we say and by the things that we do? Think about it for a little while because it would be quite a sobering question. But these guys here, these guys, his friends, they were desperate for Jesus. They couldn't get to Him. They couldn't get in there. So what did they do? They went up on the roof. And they began to tear the roof open. That's how desperate these guys were to get their friend to Jesus. So if you're sitting in there, if you're sitting there listening to Jesus teach, you hear something going up on the roof, kind of wondering, what's that? What's going on? All of a sudden, sunlight comes through and the heads come poking in through the building. And they say, those are the guys that are desperate to get their friend to Jesus. They desperately wanted to get to him. These guys went to incredible lengths 
for their friend. So I want to think about something else before we come back to the story here. I mean, what do these guys have for their friend? They have love for him, right? They, are, they love their friend. Do we have that kind of love for our friends that don't know who Jesus is? Would you go through those kinds of obstacles to get somebody to Jesus, to tell somebody about Jesus? Would you go through those kind of obstacles to help somebody understand who Jesus is? These guys tore a hole open in a roof to get him there. These men had love for their friend. They weren't willing to let any obstacle get in the way. And now we're going to see how Jesus responds here in verse 20. It says, When he saw their faith, he said to them, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I know many of us know the story here, and I know we know the outcome to this story. But if this is the first time you're hearing this story this morning, it's kind of not the answer that you would expect to hear. I think you'd expect to hear when the man was lowered down that Jesus would say, you're healed, get up and walk. And I bet you that's what the guy that was being lowered down was expecting to hear too. That's not what he heard. Instead, he heard Jesus say, man, your sins are forgiven you. And you know what's taking place here is that Jesus knows this man's greatest need even more than the man does. The man, because of the fact that he's paralyzed, figures that his greatest need is to be healed from the paralyzation. But in reality, the fact is that he was a sinner, that he was separated from God, and that was his greatest need. And I'll tell you, that's our greatest need as well. If we do not know who the Lord is, our greatest need is for him to save us, for him to cleanse us of our sins. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you've sinned and you have not come to Jesus in repentance, you are separated from God. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That means you're separated from God for eternity. But what does the rest of that verse say? It finishes and says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what's taking place here. Jesus knows the greatest need here. So he restores this man to God. He forgives him of his sins. And he offers that same salvation to us today as well. If we come to him in repentance and if we come to him in faith. And look at what happens next. What do the religious leaders do? They reject him. Look at verse 21. It says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, these scribes and these Pharisees, they didn't miss what Jesus was doing. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing here. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be God because they knew that nobody can forgive sins but God. So they knew exactly what was going on. They didn't miss it. They asked the right questions. It's just the problem is they had the dead wrong answer. They did not accept him as God. They said, how can a mere man be forgiving sins? And what Luke is trying to do here is he wants us to ask the question. He wants us to ask the question of who is this man? Who is Jesus? And he lays it out for us here. Jesus is God. Yeah, he's the one that can forgive sins. 
And this is the point of this whole thing. This is what Luke is getting to us here. This is what Luke wants us to see. He wants us to see that Jesus is God. He has the ability and he has the authority to forgive sins while here on the earth. Look at verse 22. It says, But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts, just like he knows what's going on in our hearts all the time. There is nothing hidden from him. So he says to them, What is going on in your hearts? What's easier to say? To say, get up and walk? Or to say, your sins are forgiven? That's the question that he asks them. Now, from a human perspective, the answer would be to say, to get up and walk. Because think about it. If somebody's paralyzed and somebody comes up and says, get up and walk, we can see that. We can visualize it. We can have testimony to, we can, testimony to it. We can say, yeah, I saw that guy came over and told that guy to get up and walk, and he did. It's easy for us to say, but the forgiveness of sins that's something that takes place in our hearts. That requires faith. That requires believing that God's word is true. So which is more difficult? In reality, both of them are impossible for us to do. But only God can forgive sins. Look at what Jesus is saying here. He's saying... I'm going to demonstrate to you that what I just said is absolutely true. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them. So, see what Jesus is doing here. He's painting the picture for these guys, and he's saying, Look, you're saying... I can't forgive sins. And you're telling me to tell this man to get up and rise. Well, I'm going to show you that I can do that too. So he says to him, get up and go home. He's demonstrating his power to these guys. And look again here what it says at the beginning of verse 24 one more time. It says, but that you may know that the Son of, Ma that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man. It's a special title. It's a special title. And Jesus uses this title of himself more often than not. It's how he refers to himself when he's talking about himself. He, talks to, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. That Son of Man, it comes from the book of Daniel. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's having a vision. He has a vision there. And in that vision, the Ancient of Days, who's God the Father, is giving authority to the Son of Man. And it says, and I'll read it for you really quick. It's just two verses. Uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So what's Jesus saying here in Luke? What's Luke trying to point out to us here? He's saying that this is the Son of Man. This is the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. So really, what are they saying? They're saying that this, Luke is saying that this is God. That's what he's saying here, and it's going to leave us. We can't get away from the question, who is this man? Is he God to you or is he not? He is God or he is not. 
One or the other. He's saying that Jesus is King of kings. He's saying that He's Lord of lords. And He alone can atone for the sin that's in our life. He's the, one, he's the only one that can give us new life. He alone is worthy of worship. And to demonstrate this, He says, pick up your mat and walk. Look at verse 25 again. It says, Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they, were, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange or amazing things today. So again, this healing is immediate. This man gets up. Can you imagine being there at that time, watching this man after Jesus tells him to get up? He gets up. Maybe if you lived in a town, you saw that man sitting in the marketplace, paralyzed his whole life. And to watch him, Jesus says, rise, and he rises. And look at the proper response. The proper response is demonstrated here to Jesus. They were amazed and they glorified God. That's the proper response. So really what I wanted to look at here this morning, what Luke is showing us, what Luke is trying to get us to see, is that there are two powerful illustrations here of who of these men that are desperate for Jesus. And the reality of what he wants us to understand is that that should be a picture of us. We should be just as desperate for Jesus as these guys were. And if we're not... Something's wrong. Something's broken in us. And Luke lays that out by showing us the Pharisees who were not. These, these Pharisees, they were not desperate for Jesus. They missed Him. Even though He was standing in front of them, they totally missed Him. They totally did not get it. They thought their idea of God was right. And they missed God standing right in front of their face. That's why Luke has this here. And the question that we've got to be left with is, which one am I? Am I like these Pharisees who are not desperate for Jesus at all? Or am I like these two men that are completely desperate for Jesus? And what's going on here is Jesus is revealing to us that you cannot. You cannot say that Jesus is one of many ways to God. Jesus is pointing out to us here. He's saying you cannot say that Jesus is a good moral teacher without being God. You cannot say that He had good things to say without being God. Jesus does not allow it. He puts the question to us. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and I really like this. He says, either He's a liar, He's a lunatic, or He's exactly who He said He was. So what does that mean? He's a liar. It means that He was the greatest phony of all time. What if he was a lunatic? He was someone that needed to be locked up then because he claimed that he was God and he really wasn't. Or what if he was actually who he said he was? That he was the King of Kings, that he was the Lord of Lords. He doesn't give us the option to say he was just a good moral teacher. No. The only answer we can come to is he is God. And this is the way Jesus leaves it for us. You either accept Him and you're desperate for Him like these men were who fell on their faith or who fell on their face in repentance and faith. And you believe that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Or you walk like the Pharisees. 
who want to crucify him because he's saying, what you guys are worshiping is not God. The Pharisees missed Jesus. They were blinded by their misconception of who God was. And they refused to worship the one true God. Jesus alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you either accept him or you reject him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral. You're either with him or you're not. No neutral ground at all. If he is King of kings, then when he summons us, we come. If he is the King of kings, then when he speaks, we listen and we've got to obey. Or he is not the King and the Lord of our life. So today, what we've got to do, we've got to repent. All of us have sin in our lives to repent each and every day. Now, this morning, if you don't know who Jesus is, if you've never come to faith in Jesus, today you have the greatest opportunity. He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to believe in Him for the first time. And if you do, He says, I will heal you. He says, I will take your sin. He will say to us, I will make you my own. I will give you my righteousness. You can be adopted into the family of God. And if you want to do that, just cry out to Jesus. If you want to pray with one of us, there will be people standing around the room here in a few minutes. You can come and pray with any one of them. We would love to pray with you. But you don't have to. It's between you and the Lord. You just cry out to God. He will rescue you. He will redeem you. He will save you. And now for those of us that are believers, for those of us that are Christians here this morning, the same is true for us. You have been justified. You've been forgiven. You are free from your sin. Christ has made you alive. But for the rest of your life, you're living in the process of sanctification, which means that you will have to renew yourself. You're growing more and more like Christ every day. So what do you have to do? You've got to keep putting off that sin, keep bringing that sin to Christ and asking Him and repenting and saying, Lord, forgive me and desperately come to Him each, every day, each and every day. The Christian life is a continual life of repentance. So for us this morning, are we desperate for Jesus? Would you run to Him like the leper ran to Him? Would you go to extreme circumstances to get to see him face to face? Are we desperate for him this morning? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.